Good morning, everyone. It's uh, wonderful to have uh, my daughter here as worship leader and so much of my family here, too. I'm speaking this morning on Article 9, the Confession of Faith in a Mennonite Perspective. It's called The Church of Jesus Christ. Actually, if you go to the U.S. website, it just says The Church of Jesus, which is kind of interesting. Uh, the Canadian version says Church of Jesus Christ, which I very much agree with uh, that wording. I don't know how that was decided anyway. But I'll refer to various passages in due course uh, of Article 9. It describes how Mennonites today, or at least the ones who wrote the Confession of Faith, understand what the church is and does. I noticed two currents running side by side in this article the transcendent and the earthly aspects of the church. And I want to point to these themes and then ask a further question. How does this aspirational description of the church measure up to reality? The first theme I find in this article I would call transcendent mystery. It points to the Trinity, but more specifically to the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. I wish Jim Reimer were here. We'd have a, a great lunch afterwards, talking <laughs> Trinity. The church, this article states in the first paragraph, is the new society established and sustained by the Holy Spirit. And that pretty much sums it up right there. In fact, the entire second paragraph of Article 9 elaborates on this powerful and mysterious work. The church, it says, and I quote, is a society of believers from many nations anointed for witness by the Holy Spirit. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, divisions between nations, races, classes, and genders are being healed as persons from every human grouping are reconciled and united in the church, end quote. In order to do this amazing work, and I quote again, the church depends on the Spirit's presence and power. And in the last paragraph of Article 9, we read this, as many members belong to one body, so all believers have been baptized in one spirit into the one body of Christ, end quote. So in short, the Holy Spirit is foundational to the church being church. The Spirit establishes the church it guides its work of witness and reconciliation and sustains all efforts to follow after Jesus. If you take away this living spiritual power, the article implies, there will be no church. Our scripture readings from the book of Acts establish the fact that Jesus himself did not create the church. Jesus had disciples, but he told them to wait the family of God that we call the church was established only after Jesus ascended to heaven to take his place at the right hand of God, as the scripture has it. This is the ascension, often literally depicted in stained glass images and lovely paintings on cathedral ceilings. I saw a very funny one in Cambridge, the stained glass window of, of a cloud with two feet sticking down. I guess that was... <laughs> It was one of the funniest stained glass windows I've ever seen. Was, and at the same time, in the same chapel, the, there was a beautiful painting of the ascension, of, of the usual one of Christ going up bodily, you know, above the clouds. But 
The stained glass window is priceless. The language of ascension points to a mystery. It isn't meant to literally describe something like a moon launch. The transcendent mystery is this, that the man Jesus who walked among us as a human being was actually the Christ, the promised Messiah who accomplished God's work of reconciliation on earth and then returned to his divine home. Jesus left expectant disciples behind, but not a church. That task was left to the Holy Spirit. And in fact, the Spirit has had to act in history to make the will and the power of the Father and the Son present and available to all those who were waiting. The title of this article might also well have been The Church of the Holy Spirit, and it would have been just as correct. In the first sermon ever recorded, Peter clarifies what just happened at Pentecost. And again, the stained glass windows are wonderful, you know, with, the, with uh, depicting Pentecost. You have to be there to see it. Peter says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that all of us are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured this out that you both see and hear. The man Jesus was the Christ, and he's now poured out the promised Holy Spirit upon, upon human beings and established his church to proclaim that news and point out the path to union with God. Now, this is a profound mystery. I don't know any other way to parse these words. Article 9 of our Confession of Faith is very clear about the Holy Spirit's role in establishing and maintaining the church. All the same, it's matter-of-fact statements about this mysterious and remarkable work leave me a bit disappointed. Perhaps my own familiarity with the biblical narrative has dulled my understanding of what's actually being said. Let me paraphrase. Oh, by the way, as we just read in Scripture for this morning, the creator of the universe just visited all of us with the Spirit and created Rockway Mennonite Church. No big deal, potluck next Sunday after church. <laughs> but of course, being visited by the Holy Spirit is a mystery of transcendent proportions. It is a big deal. This brings me to the second theme we find in Article 9 of our Confession of Faith which is the earthly reality of the church here and now, in time and space. Here, our confession of faith presents us with aspirational biblical language describing, quite accurately, what the church born at Pentecost was called to do and to be. As I was writing this, I could almost imagine Mark Weber breaking out in hives, especially when language about the church drifts into assertions suggesting that in contrast to the world outside, the church, our church, is a special and particular place in the entire world where harmony reigns, divisions of class and gender are overcome, love, mutual care, and hospitality are the norm. How's that? <laughs> How does the biblical description of the, what the church ought to be square with what the church actually is and has been? 
We all know at least part of the answer to this question. Historically speaking, the church has not done very well in living up to the lofty descriptions we read in the book of Acts and the letters of Paul. The list of negative examples would be long, topped perhaps by the medieval inquisition, and more recently the complicity of churches with the Nazi attempt to exterminate the Jewish people. Our confession of faith gives a brief nod to this negative reality when it says in the third paragraph that we must recognize that the church is imperfect and thus in constant need of repentance. Certainly we must recognize the need for repentance for sins committed in the name of Christ in the past and in the present. All the same, I wish our confession had named one more fact along with calling for repentance. We fail our high calling to be church because the church is made up of human beings. As human beings, we fall short of our calling consistently and repeatedly, even when our failings are relatively minor compared to the torture and murder of the Inquisition. Even as we aspire to be the church described in the New Testament, we know we cannot fulfill that high calling. We will necessarily fall short as humans do. The mission of the church has been clear from the start, to make the good news of Jesus Christ known to the world and to be the place where Christ himself is made present to the world. The Roman Catholic Church taught, perhaps still teaches, that the working power of the Holy Spirit has, was passed on through the ordination of clergy, starting with the descendants of Peter uh, down through ordination um, ordained clergy were then granted the power to make Christ present in the seven sacraments that they dispensed. When you went to Mass, Christ was present, physically present, in the sacrament of the Eucharist, for example. The Protestant reformers, by contrast, said that Christ was made known and present in preaching the Word, which awakened saving faith in those predestined to salvation. In both cases, the visible church of people you saw around you and the actual church of believers were not the same. The actual church, the family of God, would be known to God alone. Our Anabaptist parents in the faith refused to say that the church would be partially invisible. Our confession of faith seems to stand in this tradition. The first line of the last paragraph says, and I quote, we believe that the church as the body of Christ is the visible manifestation of Jesus Christ. The church is called to live and minister as Christ lived and ministered in the world." End quote. As I understand these words, our confession of faith is asserting that the church visibly lives and ministers as Jesus did when he was on earth. Don't look for Jesus Christ in sacraments or in preaching of salvation by grace through faith. Look for the presence of Jesus Christ on earth by looking at the church. The church, our tradition says, continues the historical incarnation of Jesus by living, acting, speaking, and being just as Jesus was and did and obeying his commandments. This affirmation goes back to the beginnings of our denomination in the 16th century. 
And I was tempted to fill the rest of this section with quotations from 1580s and stuff, but I won't. I'll do one. This comes from 1585. This Anabaptist said, what Christ taught us, he lived out for us in his own life and asked us to follow him. This we earnestly wish to do. And in fact, uh, this person was arrested for believing this uh, uh, as being unchristian. But anyway, it's another story. Now, far from making it easier to accept the limitations of being human, our parents in the faith set the bar even higher by insisting that all church members had to live extraordinary Christ-like lives. The church and its members, they believed, would be visible. The church would look like Jesus. Now, they didn't expect this to happen by natural ability or exertion. Christ-like lives and a Christ-like church, they believed, could only come about when the power of the Holy Spirit remade natural human beings into something else. We don't find mention of this spiritual rebirth in our article on the church. But a writing circulating in Switzerland in the late 1580s said this, and I, I thought it was so remarkable that I, I had to read it to you. Christ makes it possible for spiritually reborn believers to avoid and eliminate fleshly cravings, carnal desires, and passions of the heart. Imagine being reborn spiritually to such an extent that all passions of the heart can be avoided and even eliminated. It's a bit of a relief not to read this level of optimism in our confession of faith. <laughs> it seems to me that the Anabaptist vision of the church, empowered by the Holy Spirit to become the visible, acting body of Christ on earth, living as Jesus did, comes as close to the New Testament vision of the church as any since the time of the apostles. This inspired vision of the church with its emphasis on following in the footsteps of Jesus is what our tradition has inherited. Our tradition has refused a pie-in-the-sky church and insisted on a visible present one. But how did this vision work out in fact in the Anabaptist tradition and how is it working out now? There would be a lot to say here but I'll have to stick to the Coles Notes version. Someone has to make a bus, I understand. Is that right? On the positive side, the first few generations of Anabaptists and their descendants present a remarkable witness, recognized grudgingly even by their enemies. They were known for their commitment to non-resistance and non-violence, even unto death, for their refusal to swear oaths and their refusal to engage in blasphemous talk, or the excessive drinking, eating, and partying that was common in their time. They were known for their visibly ethical lives, noted for their hard work, honesty, plain speaking, plain dealing, and plain appearance. All of this is in the historical records. Their critics denounced all of this as hypocrisy used to deceive simple people. Their neighbors, on the other hand, generally valued their honesty and integrity and enjoyed being their neighbors. Uh, better to have an honest neighbor than someone who's stealing your cattle, I suppose, right? Even when they found them to be a slightly peculiar people. A commitment to following Jesus in life at all costs 
led to thousands of martyrdoms in the 16th century. I discovered just a few years ago uh, that uh, scholars have done a, a count and found that a third of all religious martyrs in Europe in the 16th century uh, came from this tiny group of Anabaptists who were less than 1% of the, of the population. That is, numerically, uh, the impact of martyrdom was huge on these tiny churches. After decades of studying the testimonies and writings of these people, I have concluded that these early Anabaptists did seem to draw on a supernatural power beyond themselves. I found no other explanation. I find the Anabaptist witnesses of the 16th century moving and compelling. These people didn't just talk the talk, they walked the walk. And on the basis of the evidence of their lives, I take their claims to spiritual rebirth at face value. But history and human failing have a way of humbling lofty expectations and beginnings and reveal weaknesses along the way. The Anabaptists, for example, were convinced that they were the only true church, believing, as a student of mine once wrote, that heaven won't be crowded. <laughs> they exercised increasingly strict banning and shunning to maintain their pure church. And this rigor resulted in numerous splits, divisions, and disunity, too often for petty reasons. They became famous for the many, many divisions among them. Well, just look at Ontario, right? How many Mennonite churches do, do we have just in our vicinity? Literal obedience to Jesus' commands and example of his life soon became the litmus test, taking precedence over a spiritual birth by the Holy Spirit. And that's not hard to understand. The Spirit, after all, blows where it wills, and no one has yet figure, figured out how to fill a church exclusively with spiritually reborn people. A set of rules, by contrast, is much more easy to identify and to discipline. One of my favorite examples of this early disciplining is the case of a young Swiss man who was banned from his Anabaptist community just two years after the first baptism, 1527, for wearing a feather in his hat. Why? The feather demonstrated pride on his part. It had served no useful function and a lack of humility as a result, something of which Jesus would clearly disapprove. Our church today is no longer the 16th century church and even the one of two generations ago. And the confession of faith reflects some of these changes. We no longer claim to be the only church Heaven apparently will be more crowded than we once thought. We understand ecumenism. If you read the last line of the Confession of Faith, it's clear that the church includes uh, other denominations as well. Article 9 talks about mutual accountability, but in a vague way. It says nothing, thankfully, about banning and shunning as the right way to be mutually accountable. I, have you preached on banning and shunning? Uh, Scott? No, not recently. Not recently. It's been a while. I would also say, and I hadn't asked Scott about this, but I would also say that Rockway Mennonite goes beyond Article 9 in welcoming all people to become part of the family of God. 
and not just people who, quote, join themselves to Christ, as the fourth paragraph says. I believe I'm right in saying that we invite all to join us as together we seek to better join ourselves to Christ. We now seem to recognize that we are all on a pilgrimage. We no longer maintain that we in the church have arrived, and then we ask those on the outside to join us. Uh, we recognize that the pilgrimage is for all of us. And these are all good steps forward. To return to the themes of transcendent mystery and earthly reality, both of which are highlighted in Article 9, my reading of our history as a church concludes that we have not maintained a very good balance between transcendence and the human present. As a church, we inherit a strong tradition of discipleship, non-resistance, and concern for peace and justice in this world. In this sense, we have maintained a focus on being the church of Jesus, following in his footsteps. All this is a very good thing, a strength of our tradition, and a treasure worth preserving and nurturing. On the other hand, although the confession of faith highlights the transcendent mystery at the heart of the church, namely the power of the risen Christ in the form of the Holy Spirit with us, our tradition has not passed on a strong understanding of what this might mean or how we might nurture the presence of the Spirit. I, I grew up in an era when, when uh, we imported, part of our Mennonite tradition imported, uh, um, a born-again theology from other traditions. And, and uh, in my youth, that was how you uh, demonstrated that you'd been born of the Spirit. You raised your hand in a meeting, which I did numerous times, um, being moved to do that by persuasive sermons. But we don't do that anymore, and I'm not sure what we have to replace it. I don't think that was the best way of answering this question. Uh, and we haven't replaced that with anything that I'm aware of. Uh, but it's a lack in our tradition. Our tradition has not uh, preserved a way or taught us how we might nurture the presence of the Spirit. This is a large subject for which there's no time. But I would simply say that our task as a church is not simply to act in the world, but just as fundamentally to consistently recall in our worship and our times together the presence of the living God who continually enlivens us and the world around us, often in mysterious and ineffable ways. Now, turning these pious words into a part of our lives is a difficult but necessary calling if we're going to be the Church of Jesus Christ. Let me conclude with the words of Richard Hauser, who was quoted this past May by Richard Rohr in his daily meditation. Hauser speaks to the spiritual and the earthly when he says this. The goal of the spiritual life is to allow the Spirit of Christ to influence all our activity, prayer as well as service. Our role in this process is to provide conditions in our lives to enable us to live in tune with Christ's Spirit. We can provide conditions that enable the work of the Spirit. I would want to add a couple of footnotes to Article 9 on the Church of Jesus Christ. First, I would want to recognize that the living Spirit of God acts well beyond 
the limits of anything we call church. And I would want to emphasize that, of just focusing on church as the locus of God's activity is um, very blinkered thinking. But having said that, I would want to say in the second place that the church is uniquely equipped to provide conditions that enable us to live in tune with God's Spirit. Our worship and work together provide opportunities to remember what lies beyond us. Part of living in tune with Christ's Spirit is practicing the walk, the walk that He walked before us. And this emphasis has been passed on to us, and it remains a strength of our tradition. But in addition, the church can, should, and continually must remind us and point us to the transcendent presence that called us together in the first place to serve in the world, and that continues to nurture and sustain us in our pilgrimage. May it be so.